appreciate Brother Tim's message this morning on the knowledge of God, separating his general knowledge, his um, knowledge being omniscient as he is from his foreknowledge, which is a, indeed a particular uh, knowledge that he has of people uh, that he didn't have for others. Um, in connection to that, you might read in Matthew chapter 7, verse 23, where the Lord told some people on that occasion, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. So how did he not never know them when we know he knows all people? Because he did not know them in the same manner that he knew his children. And that's a very important distinction made to be made when you're studying that subject. This morning I'd like to look at Jeremiah chapter 13. Go ahead and read the first 11 verses to you this morning. Jeremiah 13, beginning in verse 1, Thus saith the Lord unto me, Go and get thee a linen girdle, and put it upon thy loins, and put it not in water. So I got a girdle according to the word of the Lord, and put it on my loins. And the word of the Lord came to me the second time, saying, Take the girdle that thou hast got, which is upon thy loins, and arise, go to Euphrates, and hide it there in a hole of the rock. So I went and hid it in, by Euphrates, as the Lord commanded me. And it came to pass after many days that the Lord said unto me, Arise, go to Euphrates, and take the girdle from thence which I commanded thee to hide there. Then I went to Euphrates and digged and took the girdle from the place where I had hid it. And behold, the girdle was marred. It was profitable for nothing. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thus saith the Lord, After this manner will I mar the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people which refuse to hear my words, which walk in the imagination of their heart, and walk after other gods to serve them and to worship them, shall even be as this girdle, which is good for nothing. For as the girdle cleaveth to the loins of a man, to have I cause to cleave unto me the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah, saith the Lord, that they might be made unto me for a people and for a name and for a praise and for a glory, but they would not. Jeremiah was a prophet of the heart. The word heart is mentioned in the book of Jeremiah over 60 times. About 66 times the word heart is used. The book of Jeremiah is about Jeremiah. It's about Jeremiah being called to be a prophet of God, not just to Jerusalem and Israel, but to the surrounding nations at that particular time. The first chapter of Jeremiah is important to set the setting for what you're going to read in the following 51 verses. We find when Jeremiah was born that there was a very wicked king, the most evil and wicked king that Judah had ever known. And when he died, his son replaced him. He only lived a short period of time, but he continued in his ways. But he had a son by the name of Josiah. And Josiah began to reign at a very early age. And about the time he began to reign, we find where the Lord calls Jeremiah to be a prophet. So you have a young king and a young prophet to work with Israel at a time in which there's amazing similarities to the land in which we live today. In Jeremiah's day, they simply ignored the Word of God. In Jeremiah's day, they neglected it, ignored it, and disobeyed it. In Jeremiah's day, they were offering babies, young boys and girls, in a fire. Go read Jeremiah 7.31. And you'll find where they were offering their sons and their daughters 
on the hill of Tophet in the valley of Hinnom. They would pass through the fires, offerings and sacrifices. You would think, well, that's just awful, Brother Lawrence, and you'd certainly be, be right. It was awful. It was evil. It was wicked. Extremely displeasing, obviously, in God's sight. Well, that's happening in America today. It's the same thing as abortion, in other words. Children are being offered every single day that we live. Children are dying in their mother's wounds because our nation has legalized abortion. When you study the circumstances that existed in Jeremiah's day, again, you're going to see a lot of similarities to what we're living in today. Jeremiah would feel right at home today if he were living in America. I can assure you that. So that's the situation Jeremiah faced when he was called to God to be a prophet. Unlike other prophets, the book of Jeremiah gives a lot of details about Jeremiah's life and his activities and the entire books about Jeremiah and his dealings with Israel. He began to be a prophet in the days of Josiah, but it would go through several other kings and end up when the nation of Israel were going to Babylon captivity, as God said that they would. But let's go back just for a moment and look at the first chapter of Jeremiah before we come back to chapter 13. In Jeremiah chapter 1, we find that Jeremiah was a son of Hilkiah, who was a priest in the town of Anathroth. Now, he was born into a priestly family. But when God called him to be a prophet, that was based upon a divine call. Not because he was born to a certain family. In fact, that's one of the distinctions between a priest and a prophet. As a priest had to be born into a certain family, but a prophet could be called from any of the tribes of Israel. And there was a lot of difference between a priest and a prophet. Oftentimes, I just explain it in a one-word statement. A prophet represented God to the people, and a priest represented the people to God. But there was a lot of other differences when you compare being a priest and a prophet. Uh, if a man had a choice, and God gave him a choice, you want to be a priest or a prophet, he probably would have chosen to be a priest. You see, a priest's activities day by day were pretty much already outlined for him. All he had to do was follow instructions. The Word of God was very clear as to the duties and responsibilities of a priest. Once again, he had to be of the tribe of Levi. But each and every day, he would make offerings and sacrifices. Each and every day, he would examine individuals to see if they had the plague of leprosy. If so, they were to be put out in the camp. Every day, there were those who came back who had examined several weeks before to see if they'd recovered and were eligible to be reinstated. There was a general care of the sanctuary. They dealt primarily with individuals and not with groups of people. They had a guaranteed support uh, from the standpoint that they didn't have an inheritance in Canaan's land, but the other 11 tribes were to set aside on a system of tithing in a way that would support the priesthood of that particular day. The prophet had no such guarantees. The prophet had no such assurances. The prophet didn't deal so much with individuals as he did with groups of people. He usually spoke to multitudes, oftentimes nations. There were times when he came before kings. And the prophet never knew from day to day where God would send him or what he would command for him to do. There was a lot of uncertainty in the life of the prophet. So there was lots of differences. Now, being a priest required, again, following instructions precisely. We find that the priest didn't wear the clothing God had instructed him to wear, then most likely he would die. If he did not make the offering sacrifice exactly like God would, had given instructions, then most likely he would die. In fact, the scriptures usually read like this, Daddy, die not. 
that he die not, which means he would die. So he had to be extremely careful to follow God's instructions to a T. But when you look at the difference between a priest and a prophet, there are many. Now the prophet brought a message, and Jeremiah brought messages for 40 years to the nation of Israel and to the other nations. 40 years he labored among a people that was stiff-necked and rebellious. And he brought messages of God's promises and brought messages of God's wrath and judgment. Generally speaking, they did not receive Jeremiah's messages very well. Jeremiah was not very well liked. Jeremiah uh, suffered. Jeremiah spent time in dungeons and pits. Jeremiah was a man whose life was threatened. But let's take a look just for a moment or two as other things in, in chapter 1. We find where he was going to be a prophet of the nation. Beginning in verse 5, the Lord said, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. It says, Before thou camest forth out of thy mother's womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee to be a prophet unto the nations. Now the Lord knew him, the Lord sanctified him, and the Lord ordained him before he was ever born. That requires the omniscience of God, the foreknowledge of God, for sure, as Jeremiah as an individual. Before I formed thee in the belly, that tells me that life comes from God. That little expression there teaches me the sanctity of life. It teaches me that we have life because it pleased God to create a people here on this earth in the very beginning in Adam and Eve, telling them to be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. Life comes from God, and life is to be regarded and respected for what it is. But we're living in a day and age when that's not the case. Look in Psalms 51, verse 5, David said, In sin did my mother conceive me, while I was conceived in sin and iniquity, did my mother conceive me. Now, David is telling us right here that life begins at conception. It's, it's amazing to me how supposedly intelligent people, well-known people, educated people, intelligent people, do not know when life begins. That didn't used to be the case. Years ago, people, all people knew life began at conception. I trust you do here this morning. You have to be led astray to miss the point on that. Life begins at conception. Anything that grows cannot grow unless it has life. And our nation, the United States of America, can never expect to solve its problems till it recognizes why we have these problems. And we have many problems in the world today because we've disobeyed God, we've disrespected His Word, and ignored His Word on these matters. The sanctity of life is an important subject taught in the Word of God. Look at Psalms 139, beginning in verse 14, 15, and 16. David here says, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Notice that. I am fearfully made, I am wonderfully made, Great and marvelous are thy works. He says, my substance was not hid from thee. He says, when I was made in the lowest parts of the earth. Now, I think he's pointing here further down the road to the per person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who when God sent him from heaven down to this earth here, the Lord Jesus Christ was curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. That is, he experienced a conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, was sent from God the Father into this world here. And we find a conception taking place in the womb of Mary, 
that the angel says, The Holy Ghost shall overshadow thee, and the power of the highest uh, shall be with thee. And that which conceived of you shall be called, uh, that holy thing shall conceive thee shall be called the Son of God. He was curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. If you read those verses there, you'll see that the work of you know, life again comes from God, and this is the work of God. He was fearfully and wonderfully made, and so were you. When you were conceived in your mother's womb, you were fearfully and wonderfully made. And thank God your mother didn't believe in abortion. It amazes me that those who support abortion had a mother that didn't believe in it. Or they wouldn't be around advocating for abortion. And not only that, but also there's such a disregard for the aged now. And there's all kind of people in the world that when you get to a certain age and you have infirmities and sicknesses, one thing or another, they don't think that you're profitable for society anymore. And therefore, the best thing to do is just snuff your life out. We got it on both ends. And we expect things to get better in, in the land that we live in. We expect things to get better when we, as a people, legally support these things. It's not going to happen. It just isn't going to happen. And that was the case with the Israelites in the day of Jeremiah, the prophet. He said, before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. He knew all about Jeremiah before Jeremiah had an existence. That's the God that we believe in, you see. God, Brother Tim, was talking about this morning. It says, before thou comest forth out of thy mother's womb, I sanctified thee, that is, I set thee apart. That's what the word sanctify means. It means to be set apart for holy use. And he says, and I ordained thee to be a prophet unto the nations. Now, Jeremiah's about 20 years old when the Lord comes to him and tells him all of this. Jeremiah responds by saying, I'm, all, I'm only a child. I, I cannot speak. And the Lord says, don't say you cannot speak. He says, because I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you. The evidence of a true call does not produce arrogance and pride. It produces humility and fearfulness. You see that in the case of Moses, don't you? When God called Moses, Moses tried to come up with every excuse in the world that, you know, to show he was not qualified for the job. Even Gideon, when the angel came and told Gideon that God had chosen him to deliver his people out of the bondage, Gideon said, well, I'm, the, I'm of a poor family. He said, I'm the least in my family, and my family is the poorest among all of Israel. Gideon could not see himself as qualified for the job that God laid his hand upon him, that God was calling him to do. And that's the case with Jeremiah. But the Lord assures him he can do it because he's going to be with him. He says, do not look at their faces. Be not fearful of their faces. He's because I'm going to be with you. He then tells Jeremiah, he says, you're going to be like a defense city, Jeremiah. He says, and you're going to be like uh, pillars of iron and walls of uh, uh, brass. In other words, you're going to be protected by me. They will not be able to get by me to get to you. I'll be with you. They shall not take thy life. That's the assurance that the Lord gave unto Jeremiah. That was the assurance the Lord gave to the apostles when he gave them that second gospel commission recorded in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. All power is given to me both in heaven and earth. It says, go ye into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, go and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Ghost. And lo, I'll be with you all the way to the end of the world. That was an expression that perhaps gave God's servants, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, more encouragement to go forth to do the things God called them to do than anything else he told them when he said, I'll go with you. Remember the second storm when the Lord Jesus Christ came walking upon the sea? 
and they first saw him, they didn't know who he was. You know how he identified himself. He says, be not afraid, it is I. They knew who it is I was. <laughs> they knew that it is I as was the same one that was with them in storm number one that calmed the sea when he spoke and said, peace be still. They understood that. I want to know more and more about who it is I is, don't you? <laughs> I want to understand who God, the God of the Bible is, all of his divine attributes. It's important that you study them. His omnipotence, his omnipresence, his omniscience. And so the Lord says to Jeremiah, says, I'm going to be with you. You're going to be like a defense city. He says, you'll be like uh, pillars of iron and you'll be like walls of brass. They're not going to be able to penetrate you because I'm going to protect you. I'm going to go with you. When you study the life in Jeremiah, you're going to see a lot of picture, uh, word, word pictures, so to speak. You're going to see a lot of uh, illustrations that God gives unto Jeremiah that when you first read, you wonder, well, what in the world does that mean? Look there in chapter 1, after he tells Jeremiah to go and to speak the things he will command him to speak and go to the places he will command him to go. He says, what do you see, Jeremiah? And Jeremiah looked out there and he said, I see an almond tree. He says, I has well seen. He says, so shall my word come to pass. An almond tree was a, um, you know, a tree that was very familiar to the Israelites in that day. In January, it would uh, bud and start bringing forth blossoms, and it was an indication that spring was just around the corner. They could always look for that and always depend upon that. And here the Lord is giving a picture to Jeremiah that my word's going to come to pass just like I tell you it's going to come to pass. He then says, what else do you see, Jeremiah? He says, I see a seething pot. That means a boiling pot. I see a pot that's boiling. In other words, he's saying what you're seeing, Jeremiah, is a picture of something that symbolizes my wrath, my judgment, and my anger. He says, that's going to come to pass too. Now the Lord is going to declare through Jeremiah that the day is going to come when a nation up north, the Babylonian nation, is going to come and he's going to take captive the Israelites. He's going to destroy their city and they're going to dwell there for 70 years. And the reason for that is because they would not hearken to his word. The word hearken is used 23 times in the book of Jeremiah. Most time it reads like this, and they hearken not, they hearken not, they hearken not. They would not hear the words of Jeremiah. Look at Jeremiah 6 and 16. We like to quote this oftentimes as a, a type, you might say, of the gospel church as Jesus established it 2,000 years ago, and we still have it today. He says, stand ye in the ways and see... And ask for the old paths. And walk therein and you shall find rest unto your soul. Notice the instructions. Stand, see, ask, and walk. And what will be the case? You'll find rest to your soul. You know what they said? They said, we will not hear. And we will not hearken. And that's repeated time and time again in the book of Jeremiah. You know, uh, I get the, uh, the, the blessing of coming here on a regular basis speaking to you, preaching to you. And I, I, I expect that you to, re, to receive what I say. I, I do. I expect you to hear what I say, receive what I say, embrace what I say, hopefully apply what I say. Jeremiah didn't have such assurances as that. Jeremiah knew, generally speaking, just about every time he brought a message to Israel, they rejected it. They wouldn't have it. And he had to deal with false prophets. False prophets had come along and false prophets would paint a picture contrary to what Jeremiah was saying. 
So he had to deal with that. And the people liked the message of the false prophets because they'd say, peace, peace, when there's no peace. Jeremiah gave a message straight from God's lips himself, straight, straight from heaven. And they didn't like that. They didn't appreciate that. So the Lord has promised this is what's going to happen. For 70 years, they're going to be in captivity. He says, and while you're in captivity, go ahead and carry on. Life is normal. He says, you need to get married. You need to have children. You need to tend the land, et cetera, et cetera, because you're going to be here a while. You're going to be here for 70 years. False prophets come along, like you can read in Jeremiah 28. False prophets came along, and they said, oh, you're only going to be here a couple of years. He says, and the Lord's going to break the yoke of the Babylonians, and you'll be out of here in two years. When he said that, Jeremiah said, well, if the Lord said that, that's fine. But the Lord come to Jeremiah and says, he didn't, uh, I did not command him, did not send him. He's a false prophet. He's going to die this year. Came to pass just like Jeremiah said. Jeremiah went to him and says, here's what the Lord said. You said, here's what the Lord said. I'm going to tell you what the Lord told me. He says, uh, you broke uh, yokes of wood, but you've caused now yokes of iron to be put upon the people. And because you prophesied in a way that brings uh, more rebellion out of them, you're going to die this year. The next verse says, he died. How do you know the difference between a true prophet and a false prophet? Well, if a true prophet come along and brought a message, it would come to pass. If a false prophet come along and brought a message, it didn't come to pass. That's how you know the difference between a false prophet and a true prophet. A true prophet sometimes prophesied about things that had a short-term fulfillment and sometimes a long-term fulfillment. Sometimes people say, well, how do you know it was a true prophet when he's prophesying something that's not going to take place for six or 700 years? Well, uh, I just told you the answer before I gave you the question. <laughs> You know, because uh, if a prophet prophesied something that wasn't going to have a fulfillment for several hundred years, he would also prophesy something that'd have a fulfillment in several days. Therefore, you could take his prophecy of the long-term fulfillment seriously because his prophecy uh, that he gave that took place in a few days or a few weeks, it came to pass. So you know he'd be a true prophet, you see. Jeremiah is perhaps the greatest prophet in some ways that Israel ever did have. He would prophesy during the time of Josiah, but not only Josiah, but also some kings that would follow him. And he would minister for 40 years to a nation that heard not and hearkened not. Now, in the second chapter of Jeremiah, you're going to find 10 illustrations where the Lord gives him to point out some of the things I've already been saying. I'm just going to give you a couple. In Jeremiah chapter 2, he says, You have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn out yourself cisterns, that is, broken cisterns, which can hold no water. The Lord presents himself here as a fountain of living waters, waters that would come from the Lord that would be pure and clear and clean and healthy. But the waters that came from the advice of the Egyptians, the Assyrians, ones that Israel would go to, were like muddy water. Vile water, corrupt water, water that make you sick. He says, you have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn out to yourselves cisterns, even broken cisterns. Now, a broken cistern is no better than, you know, if it's broken, it's not even going to hold any water. And so they traded the Lord for idols. See, they were guilty of forsaking God and worshiping false gods, worshiping idols. That was their main sin in the particular day in which I'm talking about. Of course, again, they had the sin of immorality. They had strayed away from God, and now God sends Jeremiah with a message. He does tell them, if you repent and you turn back, 
says, then I will forgive your sins and I will not punish you. But if not, this is going to be my judgment. See, the priest, another difference between the priest and the prophet is that the priest dealt with externals, the physical and externals, uh, where the prophet was trying to reach the mind and hearts of people. When Josiah came along, Josiah was a good king. And the word of God had been lost. They found it. You know where they found the word of God? They found it in the temple. Of all places, they found the word of God in the house of God. How can you lose the word of God in the house of God? But I submit to you today, in what's called the houses of God in this world, have lost the word of God in it. Now, we do not want to lose the word of God in the house of God, do we? So when they found the word of God in the house of God, Josiah uh, then proclaimed, uh, you know, basically a reformation. And they went through a time in which the temple worship was reestablished. The idols were removed and things appeared to be better on the outside. But the trouble is they had a reformation without a revival. A revival can only take place when hearts are changed. The prophet was trying to reach minds and hearts. He was trying to reach into the inside. But unfortunately, Jeremiah's efforts fell on uh, deaf ears oftentimes. They would not hear and they would not hearken. He says later in that second chapter, he says, I planted you a noble vine. And a vine pictures Israel in several different books of the Bible, Isaiah, Hosea, a couple others. I planted you, that is in the land of Canaan, a noble vine, but you've turned into a degenerated vine. That wasn't the case when God planted them. When God planted them over in the nation of, in the land of Canaan, they had the ability to be a fruitful nation, to bring forth the fruits of righteousness, but they failed to do so. They were no longer that noble vine, you see. So we move along over here to this 13th chapter, and the Lord tells Jeremiah to do something. Then I know Jeremiah thought, well, what is the purpose of this? He's going to find out when he follows the Lord's steps and the Lord's instructions. He says, take, I says, get thee a linen girdle and put it upon thy loins and put it not in water. So he says, I got a girdle according to the word of the Lord and put it on my loins. I have found out in life that it's always better to do what the Lord says, whether I understand it or not. <laughs> you know, uh, 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 Jeremiah didn't say, well, Lord, I can do that. But what in the world is all this for? What do you want me to do this? Go get a linen girdle? I mean, what's going on here? Now, a girdle uh, normally was worn around the waist. It was an important piece of a garment. People in that day wore long flowing garments. And uh, if you tried to run in that or tried to move fast, you could easily step on the garment and you could trip and fall. So a girdle had a, had a practical use to it. You put it around the waist and tied it. It was like a belt or a strap. And it would bunch up the garment, you know, where it'd be less chance of you tripping on it. Um, Karen likes to walk a lot. I've, she walks about five or six miles a day, but uh, here lately she has tripped a time or two. And I told her this morning, she got to quit getting out and walking before daylight. You know, you can't walk in the dark without the, running the risk of that. But anyway, uh, we find they did this to help in that from a head of physical um, benefit to it, a practical benefit to it. But also it would hold things like a weapon. And it symbolized strength and alertness and readiness. You come over to the 12th chapter of the book of Exodus. 
And you'll find when Israel was getting ready to come out of the land of Egypt, God commanded them to do three things. He says, gird your loins, have your loins gird, and shoes on your feet, and a staff in your hand. What's that a picture of? That's a picture of somebody that's ready and prepared to get, get marching. They had their shoes, they had their staff, and they had their, uh, you know, uh, they had their girdle around the loins. This is a linen girdle here, in contrast to a leather girdle. Elijah and John the Baptist both wore leather girdles. They were people out in the wilderness. They were people out in the wild, so to speak. So they needed something that was a little more uh, enduring, you might say. But he says, you get you a linen uh, girdle. Now, while I read over here in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, and verse 13, a picture of the glorified Christ, and he's wearing a golden girdle. If you go back to the priesthood in the Old Testament... Uh, you go to Exodus chapter 28, you'll find where God gave instructions for the high priest to wear certain garments. And you'll have, you know, different parts of the garments described, but one of them, they would be girded with a girdle made out of gold and cloth that was color-wise was blue and purple and scarlet. Now this is all pointing us down the road to the Lord Jesus Christ. That girdle was made out of gold, the most precious and valuable metal known to man. Color-wise, blue is the color of the sky and points us to the Lord himself. It's a heavenly color. It's a color of divinity. Purple is the color of royalty. The Lord Jesus Christ came as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And scarlet is red. It's the color of blood and points us to his humanity. The Lord Jesus Christ took upon himself, uh, you know, flesh and blood just like we are, yet without sin. That high priest would have to take off his everyday garments and put on his priestly garments. The Lord Jesus Christ laid aside something about 2,000 years ago. He laid aside his glory. He laid aside his glory and came down to this earth here to live the life that you and I could not live, to do the work you and I could not do, to cross the T's we couldn't cross and dot the I's we couldn't dot. Aren't you glad there was one who lived a perfect, sinless, righteous, holy life in your room, in your stead? that God sees you through him. So Jesus laid that aside and put on his priestly garments, so to speak, and lived here in a way that God could see you through him and one day bring you into glory. So they had a girdle that was made out of gold with cloth on it that had the colors of blue and purple and scarlet. Over in Revelation 1 and 13, the Lord Jesus Christ is pictured here and he's wearing a golden girdle. That's him in his glorified state. But I read in John chapter 13, where it's a time when the Lord Jesus Christ met with his disciples, and supper being ended, he laid aside his garments and girded himself about with a towel. And he poured water in a basin. And he bowed down and washed the feet of his disciples. Here he's girded with a towel, showing a life of a servant. But in Revelation 1, 13, it's not the, he didn't gird himself there with a towel. He's girded about with a golden girdle. That golden girdle shows his reign as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He's not a servant today. He's reigning as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He's a he was a servant of all servants 2,000 years ago. But he's reigning today in glory as our great God and our great King, you see. This, this girdle here was to be a linen girdle. Now, linen in the Bible... Uh, begins over here in the book of Exodus chapter 28 as it's used in the construction of the tabernacle, the materials of the tabernacle. 
When the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified, after the third day and third night, we find where his body was taken out of that, excuse me, his body was taken off the cross and placed into the tomb. And it was wrapped in clean white linen that Joseph Arimathea brought for his burial. The Lord was wrapped in linen. In the book of Revelation chapter 19, you're going to read about the Lamb's wife, the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says, she shall be arrayed. You know, you know when you have a wedding, uh, the bride's got to have that, that, that dress, you know, that, that bride's dress. And, uh, and she wears that walking down the aisle. Well, the Lamb's wife, the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't wear a white dress, but she does wear linen, clean and white, which is a picture of the righteousness of the saints. Jesus was wrapped in it when he was put in that barred tomb. He came out. They looked in. They saw the linen clothes laid to the side. But in Revelation chapter 19, the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ, his wife, his church, his people, she is wrapped in clean linen. And then it says, Christ shall come riding upon a great white horse, and after him shall be, armies shall be following him. And those men on those horses... In that picture of those at army following him, it says they are clothed with clean white linen. This would be a linen cloth or a linen girdle. We find Jeremiah doing exactly what God told him. He went and got a linen girdle. And he put it upon his loins, just like the Lord said. Now that's, uh, this was worn the closest to the body of any of the clothing that they wore in that day. And the word of the Lord came to me the second time, saying, Take the girdle that thou hast got, which is upon thy loins, and arise, go to Euphrates, and hide it there in a hole of the rock. So I went and hid it by Euphrates, as the Lord commanded me. The Lord speaks, Jeremiah obeys. The Lord speaks, Jeremiah obeys. And it came to pass after many days, we don't know how many, that the Lord said unto me, Arise, go to Euphrates, and take the girdle from thence which commanded thee to hide there. He says, So I went to Euphrates, I dug, I took the girdle from the place where I'd hid it, and behold, the girdle was marred, it was profitable for nothing. So what have we got a picture here of? This linen girdle in the beginning was profitable. It was beneficial, it was useful. But now it's profitable for nothing. There's a time when the nation of Israel was profitable and beneficial and useful as God's chosen people in that day. But there came a time they were profitable for nothing. And there's a couple of verses uh, later. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thus saith the Lord, after this man will I mar the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. The evil people, which refuse to hear my words, which walk in the imagination of their heart and walk after other gods to serve them and to worship them, shall even be as this girl, which is good for nothing. You ever heard that? I used to hear my dad say every once in a while about somebody, he's just good for nothing. <laughs> good for nothing. That's not a compliment, is it? Good for nothing. Unprofitable, un, uh, non-beneficial, non-useful. Good for nothing. Now, I heard a new take on this the other day. Preacher's preaching. He was talking about sometimes how parents will tell their children, if you will be good... I'll give you something. Here's what my dad always said. If you're not good, I'll give you something. And he didn't have to explain what something was. <laughs> it could be the fly swatter. 
could be the palm of his hand, could be a switch, and occasionally it could be a belt. I knew what something was. If you don't do good, here's what you're going to get. If you don't good, 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 I'm going to give you something. The very idea of rewarding somebody for being good. But the idea was, you need to be good for nothing. You shouldn't have to receive a reward. You shouldn't have to get a candy bar. shouldn't need a $5 bill for being good. You're supposed to be good because that's the right thing to do. So my dad, he was behind times, I guess. He didn't know that kind of language. He never told me, if you'll be good, here's what'll happen. He said, if you don't be good, here's what's going to happen. And it happened. My my dad fulfilled prophecy. (laughs) He was a true prophet. (laughs) What he said came to pass. Good for nothing. That's the condition of Israel this time. That's why they eventually went into captivity to the Babylonians for 70 years, just like God said. But God also told them, he says, I know my thoughts. In the 29th chapter, he says, I know my thoughts towards you. They're not thoughts of evil, thoughts of peace to give you an expected end. He said, the day will come when I will gather you together and bring you back into this land. And he did. But I want to notice here, as we bring this to conclusion, the 11th verse. For as the girdle cleaveth to the loins of a man, so have I caused to cleave unto me the whole house of Israel, the whole house of Judah, saith the Lord. They might be unto me for a people and for a name and for a praise and for a glory, but they would not hear. What did, what did, God, what did God want from Israel? He wanted praise. Was that too much to ask? God wanted them to walk in a way that would identify him as their God. He wanted them to be known as his people. Is that too much to ask? Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, the question is this. What does the Lord require thee? What does the Lord require thee? It was asked, uh, God asked the nation of Israel. He says, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Is that too much to ask? Is it too much for God to ask for me to live justly? Is it too much for God to ask me to love mercy? Is it too much for God to ask me to walk humbly with him? Should I not love mercy? Should you not love mercy? You're a vessel of mercy. Before time ever began, when God foreknew you and chose you, my friends, the Bible tells us you were vessels of mercy. And when Jesus Christ hung upon the cross, we read in Psalms 85, 10, where righteous peace have kissed each other and mercy and truth have met together. It was a picture of God's mercy. When you're born of the Spirit of God, Titus 3 and 5, not by works of righteousness which we've done, but according to His mercy, He hath uh, washed us, uh, by, you know, He has, uh, washed, has washed us with the work of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. That's an act of God's mercy in your life when He born you again, when Christ died upon the cross, when God formed you and chose you in Christ before time ever began. It was all based upon the mercy of God. You should be a love of mercy. I should be a love of mercy today. And that ought to motivate me to live justly and walk humbly with my God. What does God require of us that's so difficult? What does God require of us that is uh, unrighteous? Nothing. Listen here that they might be unto me for a people. You know, in the book of Psalms, Psalms 110 verse 3 says, Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. God has a people referred to as his people. Matthew 121, the angel tells Joseph, 
but he's not to be concerned concerning Mary. Fear not to take unto Mary to be thy wife. It's for that which is conceived of her is of the Holy Ghost. So she shall conceive and bring forth a son. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. You are embracing that expression, his people. That's all God wants you to do, is to live like you belong to him. That you're his child, that you belong to the people of God. That shouldn't be too difficult for us, should it? Is that unrighteous for God to require such a thing as that? And then he says, and for a name. <laughs> Both in the Old Testament and New Testament, God wanted his people to be known by his name. You know, in 2 Chronicles 7 and 14, this is oftentimes quoted um, out here in the world. Um, and it's actually a message God had for his people, the nation of Israel. He said, if my people, notice this, if my people, not if the world, not if all people, but if my people, which are called by my name, would humble themselves and seek my face and pray and turn from their wicked ways, I would hear from heaven and I would heal their land. I believe God would do that for our land today, my friends, if we would seek his face and we would humble ourselves and turn from our wicked ways. And my friends, we have a lot of those ways to turn from then I believe we could expect healing to come from the power of God, from the hand of God in heaven's pure world. When we come together, we worship in his name, do we not? We sing in his name, we pray in his name, we preach in his name, we baptize in his name. Why do we do that? Because we love the name of Jesus, don't we? I love that name. When I hear the name Jesus, which means salvation, it just uh, encourages me and gives me uh, comfort and peace uh, to know that my Lord and Savior's name means salvation. And I have salvation in Jesus. I have salvation secured in Jesus. What a name it is. What a name to walk in. You know, 2 uh, Timothy 2, 19 and 20, the writer says, The foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. There's another good verse, isn't it, Brother Tim? The Lord knoweth them that are his. Aren't you glad about that? God is not surprised at who's in his family. He chose them before time ever began. You think he forgot all about it? You think he had a memory lapse? <laughs> I tell you, uh, I'm told that the older you get, the less your mind works good. You know, you have a memory left. I'm told about that. I don't know if that's true or not. I guess maybe one day, 20 or 30 more years down the road, I might experience something like that. But as it, as it seems like right now, I just have to wait to experience to see if it's true. Right now, I just have to take other people's words for it. All right? You think God had a memory lapse? You think God uh, forgot about something? You don't believe God knows those that are his. He does, brother. He's always known those that are his. And he wants them to walk and live in a way that people can say, you're one of the people of God. He said, the foundation of God stands sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. If I love the Lord, going to name his name, I need to depart from iniquity. I need to live in such a manner and way that people can look at my life and believe I'm one of the Lord's children. You know, I was uh, visiting with a man <laughs> uh, the other day, and we were, every time I get in conversation with somebody, I try to get it over here to the Bible. <laughs> and I found out what all he did, and he, he wanted to know what I did, and I told him, he said, well, you know, he says, my mother-in-law just moved down here from Bowling Green, and he says, uh, I go to another church, but where, where I go, it's just too big for her. She likes a smaller church. 
And he says, and, and they do that King James translation. He says, you know, and I let him talk on for a while. A little bit, I said, well, uh, just let you know, we're kind of big on that too. <laughs> we're kind of big on that too. We emphasize that, that we believe the King James translation to be the reliable, dependable, and the translation for English-speaking people today. Okay, okay. And then a little bit, he turns and says, y'all use hymnals? I said, yeah, yeah, we still use hymnals. Uh, they don't use hymnals where they go. And he said, well, my mother likes hymnals. I said, we're the perfect church for her. <laughs> I, I said, she just needs to come be with us. I said, you give me her name. I'll, I'll reach out to her. I'll touch base with her. He said, well, I'm going to do that. He said, it sounds like y'all might have what she wants. She wants a smaller congregation. She wants a King James translation. She wants him, hymnals to sing those hymns she grew up on and fed on for years and years. That's what she wants. I said, that's what we got. Oh, me. Hadn't heard from him yet. But I got his number. <laughs> Jeremiah lived in difficult times. We live in difficult It's never been easy. It never has been easy to serve the Lord. But there's been times historically where it's been more difficult than others. I think we're kind of getting in that time. Jeremiah didn't think he was capable for the task, but by God's power he was. And the same thing can be said about you and said about me. It's getting more and more difficult. It alarms me at the falling away of so many out here in the world of Christianity. Let me just put it that way to begin with. So many of our younger folks are seeking the things of this life here and the things of this world and falling away. That concerns me and bothers me as much as anything I've had to bother me and really all my ministry. We need to do all we can to teach them and encourage them and to present to them. I believe I've said this many times, and I believe it to be the truth. I believe we have two things to offer people of all ages. That's the most, two most important things that there is, and that's truth and love. Truth and love. Let's be more committed. Let's be more dedicated. Let's be more mindful of the blessings of our God. Let's not be pulled away into idolatry. And you say, well, Brother Lawrence, uh, uh, I, don't, I don't see any wooden statues and golden images and things. There, our land abounds in idols. The idol of recreation, the, the idol of sports is off the charts. Off the charts, I, I, you know, I watch a little football and they're filling the stands every weekend, college and pro, with 75 to 100,000 people in those stands. And it's, it's amazing and, and unfortunate if you saw the Tennessee game last night because the referees made a decision, a decision that they didn't like. Um, not picking on Tennessee, just stating a fact here, a decision they did not like. They had to hold the game up nearly 30 minutes to finish the last 50 seconds of it because they were throwing projectiles from the stands, water bottles, cans, a golf ball, everything you can think of down there. They had the cheerleaders had to get off the field. The band had to leave the field for their own safety. It's a game. It's just a game. 
But it's not just a game with many. It's life and death. They eat, they drink, they sleep it. Now, I, I like it myself. But I try not to love it. <laughs> I try not to love it. Anyway, thank you so much for your good attention here this morning. Read the book of Jeremiah. You, you feel like you're reading a book somebody wrote of the present day situation, circumstances right here in America. We need more Jeremiah's. We need more Josiah's. We need more you know, disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ that are committed to his cause. May God bless you and keep you is my prayer.